You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hey, there you are. Mm-hmm. Hello, and welcome to the program tonight with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Dr. Celine Marquez, a radiation oncologist, palliative care advocate, and advisor to the Enwell Foundation. Tonight, we're joined with award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Katie Butler. We're here to discuss her new book, The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life. Katie, thank you for being here tonight. I'm delighted and delighted to have you as my interlocutor. (laughs) So, um, Katie, early in my training in radiation oncology, I recognized the importance of palliative care and end-of-life care. 40% of patients who come to radiation oncology are there for palliative care treatment. Um, That is, they're not there for cure. Um, I developed an interest in patient-centered care and improving quality of life. But it wasn't until my aunt Molly was diagnosed um, last year with an advanced, um, painful, uncurable cancer that I got to see another side of the medical world. Um, And... I wish at that time that I had this book to offer to my um, my family. Um, you do such an incredible job here, kind of laying out the various health stages along the way and allowing people to um, kind of understand um, this very complex and very emotional time. Um, so I would love to hear from you, you know, what was your family experience that led to the writing of this particular book, as well as the book um, that preceded it, which was Knocking on Heaven's Door? Great, thank you. Well, I was already a journalist, and I was also a Buddhist, and I had lived in southern France in a Buddhist community, and every morning we used to recite, I'm of the nature to grow old, There's nothing I can do to prevent growing old. I am of the nature to get sick. There's nothing I can do to prevent getting sick. And finally, I'm of the nature to die. There's nothing I can do to prevent my death. But I was in my early 40s, and it just went right over my head. Um, My parents were healthy. I was healthy. My father had survived nearly dying in World War II, thanks to modern medicine. My mother had survived breast cancer. So I thought, well, maybe it doesn't really apply to us the same way it used to, right? (laughs) And then when I was in my early 50s, and my dad was 79, he had an absolutely devastating stroke. And he, our family life turned upside down in a moment. And they went from being extremely healthy, you know, people who are, you know, young old age, like me now, right? And um, he, he declined through dementia, going blind, you know, nearly blind, deafness, horribly dependent on my mother, totally exhausting for her. And I think this would have been a difficult decline no matter what. But for our family, it was made a lot worse by the fact my dad was given a pacemaker two years into this journey, which I believe prolonged this very, very worst stage of his life by at least two years. Mm -hmm. And I was both outraged and curious and bewildered that we could have such an incredible medical system and save so many people appropriately And yet our family had completely lost their voices. Mm -hmm. And we were completely unable to voice our real fears, our real values, our Mm -hmm. real concerns. Um, And our doctors seemed unable to connect with us in a way that was about what mattered to us. So I like to say, you know, my mom got more information. She really was the decision maker at that point. She got more information when she bought a new Camry a year later than she did about the implications of this device. What would the exit plan would be? Would there be a time when this was no longer appropriate, et cetera, right? Just never happened. So as a result of that, I wrote this first book, which was called Knocking on Heaven's Door, which was both a narrative of our family's experience, which was a spiritual ordeal. And also there was a lot of love expressed in those difficult years, too. It wasn't all negative. 
Um, and it's also kind of an evisceration of how technology has taken over and shaped medicine since its enormous successes since the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this one book and was sort of terrified people were going to think that my mother and I were just wanted to kill my dad. Um, and that was not the reaction. That we, you know, because there's so many people out here. Maybe it's not a pacemaker. Maybe it's a feeding tube decision. Maybe it's a, a, a long stay in an ICU. Maybe it's the third or fourth or fifth line of chemo. People are facing some versions of these dilemmas. Mm -hmm. And in the Middle Ages, there was a book called The Art of Dying, Ars Moriendi, which was a religious book that regarded dying as a spiritual passage, not a medicalized event. And I realized we really needed a new art of dying mm -hmm. that really was about the realities that are so different now than what were faced in the Bible, in any holy book. None of them have really addressed the kind of dilemmas we face now. So the second book was like, The first book was in some way a complaint. And so the second book was like, well, so what are the solutions? How do I help everybody in this room not go through the unnecessary suffering that my parents went through? I mean, we're all going to cope with necessary suffering, unavoidable suffering. But I really wanted to do something about the unnecessary suffering. So that's what it came from, yeah. you know. And I love how you've broken the book up into kind of a variety of health stages. Um, and it allows people to sort of place themselves into the context of that health stage and then be able to ask themselves the questions about what are my values, goals, and preference within the context of this health stage so that I can then communicate yeah. this with my, practi my uh, practitioner or with the health system. Yeah. And so one of the first stages you talk about is, slowing, or is the stage of slowing down. And you talk about moving from where we're young and healthy and we're interested in aggressive care to a more of a modest tinkering approach. So I'd love to hear what you, what you sure. mean by that. Sure. Um, and then, yeah. well, what I realized is it's so confusing to people because we sort of have an image of active living, you know, where we're robust, we're healthy, we're resilient, uh, we can go in and get a hip replacement or heart surgery, and we're going to bounce back. And the, the decisions at that point are, for most people, relatively clear cut. And we're also pretty clear about what active dying is, those last five or eight days of life. But then there's this like gray zone in the middle, and we think of it as very monolithic, and it's not monolithic. So the decisions, your health decisions that you're going to make when you're robust, mm -hmm. they're going to pivot. You're going to find different medical allies. You're going to find different uh, medical risks as you go through these various stages. Mm -hmm. So I talk about resi you know, resilience first, healthy young old age. Uh, then the slowing down stage, then coping with various levels of disability, um, and then progressing into also facing like a terminal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And a stage that I call the house of cards, which I think is extremely significant, and we don't clearly emphasize it enough. And, and if any of you, I bet some of you in here are already caring for older parents or have or grandparents, there's a stage where they start to cycle in and out of the hospital and they get worse every single time. Mm -hmm. And that's the house of cards stage. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry, I'm probably just saying way too much in the, <laughs> right in the beginning. But to go back, so um, I, I, I just feel like if there's one yeah. thing you take away from here tonight, it's recognizing the house of cards yes. and adjusting for a very, very different approach to medicine yeah. at that point. Yeah. So to go back to modest tinkering. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the slowing down stage, this is when people start to accumulate ologists. You know, there's, there's the, you know, there's the nephrologist and the cardiologist and the, you know, and you start to bounce around and everything gets very fragmented. You know, care gets very fragmented. The doctors aren't talking to each other. And this is where I say modest tinkering becomes really important because... Mm -hmm people to start to end up on too many meds mm -hmm. because a bunch of doctors are prescribing things without even knowing the other things. And then there's side effects. So there's another med for the side effect, for the side effect, for the side effect. And 
I want to give a simple example of modest tinkering because it actually might apply to all of you at whatever age. If you have trouble sleeping, Benadryl, a lot of people take Benadryl. And Benadryl, as you age, becomes more and more risky, even in the short term, just confusion. Um, And there's a whole class of drugs called anticholinergics, which is a big word worth learning, but there are a lot of drugs that create temporary confusion or drowsiness, but they're seeing that the risk, it creates a 50% greater risk of dementia Mm -hmm. 10 years later than it does now. So modest tinkering is, do you have light-tight blinds? Do you need a new mattress? Uh, Start with what requires the most of you and the least of medicine. Start with the practical changes in the environment and then move into the body slowly and cautiously. So hot bath, hot milk with nutmeg, chamomile tea, you know, approach having to take a drug very, very cautiously Mm -hmm. because a lot of these drugs have detrimental effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you have to take a drug, the, the lowest effective dose of the medication with the less possibility for harm. So that's what I mean. And I'm just talking about sleep. And just as an example, which actually applies to lots of people, um, no screens after dinner, right? No screens after dinner. That makes a huge difference in how you sleep. But it's like, take that, just take that as the algorithm. And you can apply that across the board to issues that come up. You know, at this stage, you don't want to go straight for surgery or straight for a heavy drug because your body's capacity for tolerating and bouncing back is starting to decline. Right. And so, you know, one of the most important things is to have values, because if you don't have values that you then communicate with your health providers, their values become your values. Mm -hmm. And our, as physicians and health systems, we're Mm -hmm. optimized to go in and try to increase lifespan, to increase, you know, the the time that you have. And we are willing, when people are young and middle-aged, to forego some quality of life in the short term for the hope of longer life. But as you get older, and as she's describing, your ability, that those quality of life hits, don't, you don't ever go back to where you were before. Yeah. So it's important just to know, and that's why I love this book, is that you can recognize where your stage is, begin to think for yourself, how have my values, goals, and preferences changed within the context of this time? And then how can I communicate that? That's the critical part, communicating that with your physician and with the health system so that you can then begin to understand when their values are becoming your values, you can say, wait, yeah. let's really think about that. Let's be more, um, let's use more conservative measures. Yeah. Um, and so the next, the next phase you call adaptation and, and this is where you start to have some more disability, uh, some more limitations, and you, you describe dis, uh, disaster-proofing your life. <laughs> I love this. Um, but what's interesting is a lot of people feel um, uncomfortable or they feel embarrassed or ashamed about doing, using things that modify their life or help them adapt. Yeah. And so... Um, but we live in a time where we have all this tremendous technology. You yeah. know, what are really cool, interesting ways that you've seen people adapt to their limitations um, yeah. that are, you know, where they're using technology yeah. in novel ways? Well, I, I, I so much agree. This whole thing about shame, yeah. you know, like we don't want to look like where we have a disability in yeah. any way. And a, another really obvious example is hearing aids, because mm. hearing aids reduce your risk of dementia, you know, because you stay engaged, you stay social, you're not withdrawing from a conversation. I've had cataract surgery and I notice I I not only see better, I actually drive better because my mind isn't trying to puzzle things out. Um, So, you know, I say the earlier the better, but Apple Watches could be wonderful medication um, reminders. Mm -hmm. They could also be fall... um, you know, mm-hmm. detectors of falls. I, th- I think there's tremendous opportunities for tech. Mm-hmm. There's a site called Tech Enhanced Life, which I think has a lot of these gizmos on it, um, and uh, stoves that turn off. And if, 
if you use technology, you may be able to... Sounds good, doesn't it? You, know? <laughs> um, you may be able to stay home a lot longer than you thought. A lot of people really want to age in place and stay independent and f free as long as they can. And so I, I really think there's tremendous opportunities for tech mm -hmm. that I hope they start to, to pick up on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how about where has technology, like where are the gaps that you see or where has yeah. technology sort of encroached into places where it really shouldn't be? Like, where are we sort of solving problems? Yeah, well, one thing that really concerns me is this use of, like, s fake seals and fake robots to have so-called human conversations with people. I realize there's some ways, you know, aut autistic people actually can do really well with Siri or um, probably Alexa too, you know. But we have a... We have a problem of there not being enough meaningful, well-paid work for people in this country and in all advanced industrial countries. So why don't we up what we pay caregivers and you know professional caretakers so that that's very meaningful work and it's emotional work. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to see tech used to try to substitute mm -hmm. for emotional relationships. I think one of the great harms that's been done by this technological revolution in medicine is that we've created all these environments that are technology rich and relationship poor. And we fund and reimburse mm -hmm. high technology medical interventions while we starve the people who are the geriatrics doctors, the palliative care doctors, um, you know, the relationship doctors, the pediatricians, they, you know, it, good medicine is a relationship thing. It's, it's not only a technology thing, and we, we're overcompensating the technologies and we're undercompensating the, the human, soft technology of emotional work. Yeah. Yeah. So another stage I'd like to touch on is awareness of mortality. Yeah. And um, I love that you encourage patients to tell their doctors to be frank about their prognosis and you say I want you t to tell them I want a realistic picture so I can plan and when I read that like I wanted everyone to know like that is a gift to your doctor to be able to say that to them so that they can then have an open honest conversation about what they think realistically would happen yeah. and you know we want to have those conversations but we've all um, had experiences where patients aren't ready. And I would even say probably the majority of people yeah. don't want to have those conversations. Yes. We're in a unique setting right now. You guys are very, you know, unique truth, truth seekers. You're but early adopters. You're early yeah, adopters. Yeah, yeah. But most people don't. And so we've all had experiences where we want to start the conversation we want to have on honest uh, dialogue around what might happen, yeah. but then the pa patient feels that um, we, we're, we've, we've lost hope or we're giving up on them. So um, this is really, I think, a statement that you can use to unlock a deeper relationship with your, with your physician so that you can have that conversation. And then I think it also is a way to kind of unlock access to then creating a good end of life yeah. because it starts it early enough. You know, it's, it starts it in the beginning so you can begin to have all the conversations. Um, and so I love, I love that this idea. Um, but Katie, since this is an unusual patient, how do we, how do we make this yeah. more of the norm? What's standing in the way? Well, I, I think people have to understand a couple things, unwritten rules of medicine. One is that you will be continued to be offered everything mm -hmm. until finally either you or someone who's speaking for you says no. Yeah. And that the assumption, the reactive, uh, the, the default under, rea understanding of the system as a whole mm -hmm. is that your primary goal is to extend your life as long as possible, no matter what the effect of the treatment on your function or your well-being. Those are just sort of hidden assumptions that I think it's very important for non-medical people to understand as the lay of the land, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and so you may have a doctor who's sitting there just saying, well, we could do this, 
and they are silently just praying for you to say no. Yeah. It's not a good idea. Or what goal are we serving here? Right. Um, and I, we've just created some. We've created some strange interactions here. So if if I could, I'd like to read a little right. short thing from the book. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a woman named Amy Berman, and she uh, had inflammatory breast cancer, which is one of the bad varieties with a bad outcome forecast. Um, and she went to the top oncologist in the country in her particular cancer. And the night before that appointment, she discovered that biopsy results had come back and her cancer had already spread to her bone, so she was stage four. Uh, So this has happened quite fast. The next morning, Amy told the famous oncologist about her biopsy results. He didn't pause. Here's what we're going to do, he said plowing ahead with his plan. Six weeks of intense chemotherapy, followed by surgery to remove her breast, then radiation and another round of chemo. This Hail Mary treatment plan would expose her to great suffering, and then she'd bump along for who knew how long in severely damaged health. And for what? Her cancer couldn't be rooted out. She questioned the unspoken assumption that the most harrowing treatment would produce the best possible result. There was no conversation, she said. He was expert in everything but what really mattered to me. I thanked him for his time, and I left. Back at Maimonides, her original oncologist asked a more welcome question. What do you want to accomplish? Amy said she hoped for a Niagara Falls trajectory to live as well as possible for as long as possible, and then to go over the waterfall to death without undue delay. (laughs) So listen to the difference between those two questions. Here's what we're going to do versus what do you want to accomplish? And a lot of ordinary people care much more about maintaining function than they do about stringing it out to the last possible moment. And so this whole question of, how is this going to affect how I function? You know, this is what matters to me. This is what makes my life worth living on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. To make sure you're articulating those things to yourself first mm-hmm. and then to articulate them to a doctor. And, you know, if you get really bad news, don't expect you're going to be able to like, all right, how is this going to affect how, my, how I'm going to function? You know, it's going to take you some time to absorb, to weep, to connect with the people who you love before you're really going to be able to. So don't expect a miracle out of yourself in terms of timing, but give yourself some time. It's very rare that these things, you're the doctor here, thank God we've got a doctor up here. But, you know, um, you know, usually it's, it doesn't have to take place tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You've got a week, you've got to, you've probably got even more time mm-hmm. before we, we get into a false sense of panic sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to complete this. Okay, so Amy goes on a estrogen-suppressing uh, drug. She's been at least two that I know of. It's been nine years now since Amy stood weeping with her mother in the rain. She's never spent an afternoon in a recliner or been hospitalized or too weak to drive. She's climbed the Great Wall of China, ridden a jet ski to the base of the Statue of Liberty, and seen her daughter Stephanie graduate from college and get married. She's made quality of her life her priority. And paradoxically, she's outlived many people who opt for more grueling treatments. Most doctors, she said, focus only on length of life. That's not my only metric. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, she's been incredibly lucky. You know, we're not all going to get that kind of massive good time by being very cautious and minimalistic about how we treat. But a lot of people who get palliative care, who do have terminal diagnoses, palliative care and hospice, outlive the people who do the most harrowing treatments because the harrowing treatments throw you into the house of cards. They mm-hmm. throw you into a situation of so much vulnerability, you may go into the hospital for some reason, 
you pick up an effect, infection or you're a very, very stressful hospital stay, and that may send you into the downward spiral. Yeah. So I brought with me my... Uh, one of the things I suggest you ask a doctor is, what's the normal trajectory of my illness? Because every illness has kind of a signature. You can, a doctor can't say it's going to be six weeks or it's going to be six months. They might be able to say it's going to be months to years, or they might be able to say it's going to be days to weeks, but they're not going to, nobody's can give you any precision. There's so much variety in people's underlying health state when they get a diagnosis, all kinds of stuff. So, but I thought I might show you these. So this is like looping decline, which is like uh, heart disease, for example, my dad, uh, heart, for, uh, kidney failure with dialysis. This is See, this is, quality of, this is quality of life, and this is death, okay? So where you have almost a daily change in your quality of life if you're on dialysis. Um, there's looping decline. Here's, here's Niagara Falls, see, you know? Um, so different diseases have these different sort of... And this is, oh, this is the dwindles. This is what hospice nurses call the dwindles when people... Just, you know, they may be a little bit more dementia. There's never really any diagnosis, and they just take a long time to fade away. Mm -hmm. So it really helps. When my dad was really fading, my mother and I went to a counselor at the Alzheimer's Association, and she drew kind of a stair-step decline, which is uh, what actually happened with my dad. There would be a plateau, and then there would be a drop, and there would be another plateau, another drop. And there's something about being able to see the whole picture that's it's oddly reassuring. I don't know how to explain it exactly, but it almost like normalizes that you're, you're on a passage that human beings have traced for eternity. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing wrong with you. And there will be a constant series of new normals. Mm -hmm. And that is par for the course. And I think because we're so used to that stage of life where we are resilient, we're really used to, you know, we have a big health setback and we get a surgery or something happens and then we bounce back. And so something about just seeing these sketches, I think really helps you. And you can, you don't have to be Michelangelo. He can draw it on the back of a napkin. You know, this is not, this is not precision science. Mm -hmm. It's more to give you a sense of the lay of the land and where you might be on that land. On mm -hmm. that land. Yeah, I hope that's beautiful. Enough, you yeah. know, um, yeah. and also to encourage your doctor to say, you know, thank you. I really need to hear yeah. um, this. I mean, you did a study apparently that showed that what percentage? Seventy percent of people getting. Yeah, whole brain, brain radiation for brain glioblastoma, which is a fatal cancer. Yeah, think it's possibly for cure. For cure. Yeah, um, there's a huge gap, I think, in oncology yeah. training. Um, some people are very good at this who are oncologists, and others, they really just put it off and put it off, and then mm -hmm. they fob it off on a palliative care doctor to mm -hmm. have the difficult conversation. You know, so I, I think. Yeah. You want a doctor who will speak English to you, mm -hmm. and if you can't get on the same page with them, I really think it's very important to either yeah. find another doctor who you can feel like you can bring your yeah. whole self into the room. You're not just a bundle of diagnoses. You're a person. And either you want a specialist, and then you want a backup who's a palliative care doctor who can help you um, with symptom management, pain management, having complicated conversations with your oncologist. Um, you either need to bring a palliative care person into the team um, or you need to find someone, the cardiologist or the oncologist, who's actually emotionally skilled and you feel comfortable being honest with about your fears and your hopes. Yeah. I, I suppose I have one more. I, I mean, I hope I'm not. Am I going on too long mm -hmm. here? Okay. Um, another thing is to ask the doctor what his goal is for the treatment that he is suggesting. Why are you suggesting this? Is it to extend my life? Is it to buy me more time? Is it for cure? Is it to uh, um, lessen my disability? Mm -hmm. Is it to lessen my pain? Mm -hmm. Like, you're, an, you're a radiation oncologist, mm -hmm. so... 
radiation can be fantastic for people with like br bone cancer that's mm -hmm. very painful. You know, mm -hmm. really targeted radiation can take away that pain. In fact, Amy Amy Berman mm -hmm. in the book mm -hmm. has you know has it and really really helps her. Mm -hmm. So it's not like any it's not like there's any one particular intervention that's good or bad mm -hmm. it's just like what's appropriate and whose goals are we serving here you know yeah yeah i love that and i think you know we don't have a lot of the information that we need too about how patients feel and function and one of the things i'm interested yeah. in is patient reported outcomes because that is how we determine how we yeah. get to understand how your quality of life is impacted by our treatments most people are surprised to learn that many of our clinical studies don't have that component yeah. it's about tumor shrinkage it's about survival and tumor shrinkage principally but what do people care about? They care about how am I feeling? How am I functioning? Think about like with hip replacements, you can get, okay, what are the post-op infection rates? Yeah. But what about, do, can I use my hip? Am I in pain? Those are the types of things we care about, but we don't have good information. We don't have the data. And yeah. so we're now trying to integrate into our clinical trials, patient-reported outcomes. These are things that you should be asking about for various treatments and interventions. What are the patient-reported outcomes for this particular yeah. treatment that you're offering? And if they don't have that information, there are websites, there's groups of patients, I think patients like Patients me. like me. So yeah, so you can go yeah. and look for that information from other people who've been through yeah. it to try to help to understand... Because um, often what the clinician will tell you is what their their most recent, it's a recency bias. They'll be like, oh, I saw some patients and they tended to have this, this or that. But you want to get better information that's really particularized to you. And in order to do that, you need larger numbers of patients and not just the, you know, the, the, yeah. uh, what the one physician that you're, you're talking to has experienced. And I think you're pointing out something I think is really important, which is that we have a lot of irrational systems that we're operating in so that you can have great doctors, but they're also operating in systems that are not yeah. actually rewarding their best, right. um, you know, right. best practices. Right. For example, the big metric for surgery is, did you survive for 30 days after the surgery? But, okay. Well, I mean, that's a good beginning. It's not, a, you know. But, but were you capable of walking out of the hospital is, is not asked. Right. You know, was there an effect on your function? That's right. You know, there are a lot of people. I mean, there's a guy in the book, of course, who, you know, goes in for actually fairly minor heart valve procedure, outpatient procedure, but he's already in this house of cards stage. He never walks again because he has three weeks of sort of post-operative dementia and is therefore like flat on his back, doesn't move, loses muscle mass and, you know, dies nine months later on hospice, which is good. And he's actually the, the father of the guy who told me about the phrase House of Cards, the mm -hmm. doctor who really pushes people thinking about this, so... Oh, and I want to go back to tech one more time. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we can have a, a... I know people have feelings about Facebook, but I think Facebook's great. Why can't we have electronic medical records that are as effective and full of information mm -hmm. as um, Facebook? Mm -hmm. Because then you could get those kind of outcomes, like did he ever walk again? Or yeah. is he having a great time with his grandchildren as a result of something that really went well? It's we Electronic me medical records, you probably know, are the absolute bane of the healthcare system because they have robbed doctors of the little remaining time that they really had to connect with patients and build relationships. Right. And if you're a patient, you know how difficult it can be if someone doesn't even look you in the eye once mm -hmm. because they're over their machine. Yeah. And uh, really, they need to start from scratch. And if they could save the, the website of the ACA, of the uh, Obamacare, you know, they put together this whole team of emergency people who totally redid it. Why not put together a team to totally redo uh, electronic yeah. health records? Yeah. So that they actually really serve both patients and doctors. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I love that. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.
So let's talk a little more about House of Cards and what's that, what that okay. means. You know, this is a really a, a health stage that's characterized by frailty. And what my personal experience with my aunt um, taught me is that, you know, it's, it's, it's about, you know, she went from being extremely vital and healthy and over a three-month period deteriorated quite quickly um, to become frail. And I was naively thought that her physicians at a um, well you know, like community hospital would alter their care and the hospital system would alter their interaction with her to sort of deal with her frailty. But really it wasn't, there was really no change. It was just like the hospital was a machine that we had to actually protect her from inappropriate medical care. And if we didn't protect her through having someone at her bedside or telling the physicians that they're admitting her, you know, not to anticoagulate her, um, different things like that, she would have been harmed. And it was really scary. And I'm thinking for people who are not physicians or have physician you know, as family members, how are people navigating a system that will literally, you know, it feels like she would just be crushed in this, this hospital process. Um, so tell, talk to us more about sort of the state of frailty and how that sort of shifts us away from thinking about when and how and what treatments to choose to protecting, uh, ourselves and our loved ones from inappropriate medical care. Yeah. I think recognizing the stage is so important. Uh, Sort of a real simple rule of thumb is like, if you can't walk half a mile under your own power, you're on the the stresses of a hospital stay or visit may be absolutely overwhelming. uh, there's something called the timed up and go um, test, where they, you know, you stand up, you walk to the door and back. And I, I can't remember. I think it's in the book, but I think it's like, what is it? Somebody know here? Kind of timed up and go. No, no geriatricians here. Oh, too bad. <laughs> but you know, uh, just it's characterized by moving slowly, um, being very fatigued. It takes everything you have to get through the day. Um, hospitals are very stressful, mm-hmm. even to people who are robust. Mm-hmm. And often what happens to people in the House of Cards is they develop something called hospital delirium, which was always thought of as a temporary, like a temporary setback. So confusion, hallucinations, people seem to like just go crazy. And then unfortunately, the hospital can then actually kind of make it worse with, you know, putting somebody in a psychiatric unit, being woken up at night, all of these things, they're just devastating. And if you're already fragile, they can set off this terrible thing. Mm -hmm. And then even if you get the person out of the hospital, you think they've recovered maybe, but they are actually much greater risk of dying within a year and of their, if they have dementia, their dementia getting, their cognitive function getting quite a bit worse and not recovering. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is sort of one of the more radical things I've said in the book, but actually it's all, ba- you know, I, everything. I, I collected stories from over 200 people, but I also checked out everything with palliative care doctors and geriatricians and experts in whatever area I was writing about. Yeah. But it's really try to avoid the hospital. <laughs> Um, it's, yes, <laughs> everybody laughs. I know. Yeah, I mean, we—it's so funny. It's it is in a way funny because it's like all of our life we thought, "Oh my God, this is a crisis. Let's get to the hospital, <laughs> right?" And um, if you—I mean, you—you—you you, you either have to be incredibly tough-minded, yeah. or if you can bring in some form of home-based nursing care. Mm-hmm. Or physician care, and this is again, this is a huge gap in our system. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. an enormous gap in our system mm-hmm. that unless you're on hospice, you can't really. It's very hard, and there's some programs called like serious illness care. Um, they're trying to do upstream. It's called upstream palliative care. Um, the VA actually has a great program for home-based medicine. Um, it's, I mean, this is sort of risky to say, but, you know, if someone gets dizzy and falls and they have not broken a bone, they're not bleeding, 
you're probably better off just keeping them home and you know going to an urgent care the next day rather than going to the ER where somebody will sit for hours because they're the lowest priority the environment is confusing they may spend 3 days in the hospital they may get hospital delirium they may be sent to a rehab for 3 weeks and then the cycle repeats and repeats mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it it never looks good mm-hmm. you know it looks worse every time there's a woman in the book her poor dad goes through this 9 times in his last year of life he's got parkinsons but he can't get on hospice because Parkinson's is not a hospice diagnosis because it moves too slowly. And it's only, he, she can only qualify him in the last, like, it was within the last two weeks of his life that she was finally able to qualify him for hospice. Mm-hmm. And it's just really tragic. So that's, you know, if you can, if you can get into someone into hospice or go back or, Keep a very careful journal of mm-hmm. how they're deteriorating because sometimes if 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 the rate of deterioration is fast enough, sometimes a hospice physician will say, we can predict that this person will die within six months, so therefore they are qualified for the hospice benefit. Yeah. But um, it's, it's a huge... We ought to have like a home-based palliative care benefit so that... For a year or two years, you could be at home and get medical services at home and stay out of these very, very harsh environments. Yeah. You know. Um, it makes me think of kind of what the, you know, the language, you know, let's say someone's in the hospital, you didn't want them to be there, they're there, mm-hmm. and now we have to de-escalate care, you know. And there's ways in which we talk about, you know, the... Okay, and I'm going to stop you right here. Okay, okay. Or, <laughs> yes. Yes. Because I think one of the biggest sources of confusion, you know, I'm a language person. I'm not an MD. I'm not a medical provider. But I am a language person. And that's the confusion between care and treatment. So she just, she's a doctor. So she just said, de-escalate care. Okay, but you, all of you who are not doctors, what do you think of when you hear the word care? You, okay, I think of I think of tenderness, I think of support, mm. I think of being careful, I think of caring for someone, possibly nursing care. I don't think of being in the ICU as care, mm-hmm. okay? But inside the medical system, any form of interaction with a patient is labeled as care. Mm-hmm. And and there's it's it, it's a huge source of confusion because mm-hmm. i think if you say if you if you're a doctor and you're totally well meaning and you say to someone i think it's time we deescalated care for your grandmother how are you going to feel mm-hmm. you're going to say absolutely not i don't want you stopping caring for my grandmother i don't want you abandoning my grandmother i want you to love her and continue to love and care for her so it's so different if you talk about treatment rather than care. Yeah. Because you can say, I don't think this treatment is really helpful. Mm-hmm. I think this treatment is really getting in, in, in the way of our ability to care for her. Yeah. yeah. You know? So anyway, We've so that's got, a big side. Yes. No, no, no. I, that's actually where, where yeah. I was going. I was just thinking yeah. about the language that we use and how it obfuscates what's really happening. Like yeah. how we say the patient failed first-line treatment. It's like the patient didn't fail. The drug failed the patient, you know? But we do this thing, and like with this, you know, de-escalate care. Care is not what, we're not removing care. And in fact, if we add palliative care, that is real care. That is real hands-on for the physical, spiritual, emotional. uh, Takes into account your family and the context. And so often people think, well, we're taking away care if you go to pa- use palliative care. But in fact, you're getting so much more. Yeah. You're getting more of this thing that we call care. And so I think we have to start to challenge that language when you hear it. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it, it confuses us. And it's, we're already in a confusing yeah. environment. You're yeah. in an ICU with a loved one. There's all these, this terminology. It's hard to understand. And then you have physicians who are speaking in this way that confuses things even more. So I think we have to be careful about that. Would yeah, you- and I think what's... It's so easy to get over-focused on medical treatment and forget about 
the emotional and spiritual work Mm -hmm. that's going on at this stage of life. And so I've got a lot of stories in the book. You know, you have to reconfigure what hope means to you. Hope doesn't necessarily mean living to the last possible second, right? There's all kinds of different kinds of hope. Hope for leaving your loved ones in good shape emotionally, leaving a good emotional legacy. Um, Maybe it's it could be taking a trip. It could be writing a landmark letter for your daughter to open on the day she gets married or the day that she has her first child so that you have some hope that she will get a message from you even though you can't be there physically. Mm-hmm. And I want to read a very short thing if I can. Do not underestimate the power of your emotional legacy expressed in even a small last-minute exchange. Yeah. Kathy Doobie was raised on the East Coast by a violent alcoholic mother. She had no memory of ever hearing her mother say, I love you. Kathy moved to California, just like a lot of people do, and the two women's relationship continued to be marked by bitterness and distrust and estrangement. When Kathy was in her 40s, her mother developed breast cancer. A little more than a week before her death, she was admitted to the hospital And she told Kathy, don't come. I don't want to see you. Kathy got on a plane anyway on the advice of a friend who said that if she didn't, she would regret it for the rest of her life. She walked into her mother's hospital room. There she found a tiny figure curled up in bed, shrunken, yellow, bald, bronzed by jaundice. This was the mother she had feared for so long. The two women looked at each other in silence. Kathy's mother said aloud, for the first time Kathy could remember, I love you. I'm sorry. Kathy replied, I love you, and I'm sorry. Those few moments, said Kathy, cleared up a lifetime of misunderstanding each other. So, you know, the hospice movement talks about thank you, I love you, please forgive me, I forgive you, and goodbye. And, you know, the good news is you don't have to wait till someone is dying to start this kind of cleaning up work. I mean, Mm -hmm. I started writing thank you letters to my dad six years before he died. Um, But it it cleared the way for the death to be more peaceful. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's, it's very difficult. You know, you kind of get into the maw of a system, and that's why it's important to sign these advanced directives and to not just sign them, but to have conversations with the people yeah. who are likely to be your protectors yeah. at this stage. Yeah. I have a very detailed dementia directive yes. in the book, you know, that really describes what comfort care is. Um, I think it's a lot easier if you can say something like, I want palliative care. Um, I think comfort care only would be the best thing now. It's always better when you say what you want rather than what you don't want. Mm-hmm. So if you say, you know, I don't want my dad to suffer another minute, you're not going to get as good a reaction as you're going to get from the system if you say, I think what's appropriate now is comfort care, you know. Um, I love that. You know. In the last part of your book, you, you talk about preparing for a good death and active dying. And I think that part is so practical. And I think everyone should have the book on its shelf for that part. Um, but it's, um, you know, with my aunt, I felt like, well, because of my personal interest, she went with me to the Zen Hospice Project. And we spent a day wow. actually thinking about end of life. And this is when she was young and healthy and uh, didn't, you know, have the diagnosis. And we did a, f- a meditation um, where we experienced getting an advanced diagnosis and meditated all the way till we died. So we got to experience our own death. And we left that and talked to each other in detail yeah. about what it is that we wanted. And we were imagining it's, you know, 40 years down the road, I was going to help her do this beautiful, sacred end-of-life experience But then only months later, she was diagnosed. And so if we, I don't think we would have had a good death for her had we not had the conversation when we didn't have to. Because when you get that diagnosis, you're in a state of shock. 
and there's so much chaos around it. You can't, you know, you can't begin to start to have those conversations. And I think it really is the key to do it now to start to think about what, what it looks like. We talked about, because we did the meditation, we talked about everything from the smells in the room, the flowers, where she wanted to be, who she wanted to talk to, the letters that she wanted to write. Um, and I think it was really only because we had that time, just like you're describing, don't wait, Yeah. do it now. We're all, we all don't know when something's going to happen. Right. Um, and so let's... Let's stop. Okay, I want to. I want to. I want to end with a ritual that I want to offer you, and um, also just suggest five wishes as a wonderful advance directive. If you're finding the dry ones too dry, it's it's you know like what music do you want played at your uh, funeral service? You know, are there text poems you'd like read to you while you're dying? You know, let's humanize it a bit. So. There's some nurses in um, Santa Barbara, California, who invented this ritual as a way of making a hospital death more sacred. After washing and dressing the dead in clothes from home or a clean gown, the nurses encourage relatives and friends to anoint the body with lavender oil. The physicality seems to be very helpful, said Beth Combs. I have a theory that after witnessing a death, we go into shock and our minds become numb and chaotic. When we start bathing and touching our loved ones, our bodies understand what our minds cannot. As the hair is anointed with oil, a nurse or a family member recites, we honor Jane's hair that the wind has played with. Next, a dab of oil is gently rubbed on the brow as someone says, we honor Jane's brow, the birthplace of her thoughts. And then it goes on. We honor your eyes that have looked on us with love and viewed the beauty of the earth. We honor your nostrils, the gateway of breath. We honor your ears that listen for our voices. We honor your lips that have spoken truth. We honor your shoulders that have borne burdens and strength. We honor your heart that has loved us. We honor your arms that have embraced us. We honor your hands that have held our hands and done so many things in this life. We honor your legs that carried you into new places of challenge. We honor your feet that walked your own path through this life. We give thanks to the gifts you have given us in our lifetime. We give thanks for the memories we created together. We have been honored to be part of your life. Mm. So I think it's just so beautiful what they did, and it's so non-denominational. And, you know, you can take it, you can modify it, you can create your own. And I think if we have some more positive images of how we can help each other through the ends of our lives and the kind of caring that we can get from people who love us, I think maybe some of these medical decisions are going to become easier for us too. Thank you. Thank you for that. Now we're going to the audience for Q&A. As always, keep your questions short so we can go through as many as possible. Raise your hand and someone will come find you with a microphone. Uh, hi. Uh, first, I'd like to say that uh, uh, I'm very active in three prostate cancer support groups. The men in those groups find um, a lot of um, benefit from attending, so I'd recommend that people look into that if you have a, a situation where a support group would be useful. My question is, um, I'm, I'm particularly worried about Alzheimer's. I don't want to be mm-hmm. spending the last year or two or three years uh, completely um, disabled by Alzheimer's. I understand there's an organization in, in Switzerland called uh, Dignitas. Can you tell us about that? Um, there, I, I, I believe Dignitas, uh, well, you know what? I don't actually know a lot of detail about Dignitas, but obviously there is a nationwide movement to allow people more control over the timing of their deaths. Yeah. Our next audience question is going to be over here in the center. 
Thank you. I wondered if you could comment on Dr. Ezekiel uh, Emanuel, uh, Ram Emanuel's brother, who wrote that Atlantic article talking about how he's going to stop doing anything at 75. He was 57 when he wrote it, and he reserved the right to change his mind. But the idea of simply not going for your colonoscopy, not going for your regular checks, could you comment on that as a strategy? Well, it's also similar to Barbara Ehrenreich's book, actually. Um, And the closer I get to 75, the less relevant it seems. Um, (laughs) But I I think it's kind of like a, it's like a hammer. You know, it's it's like, you know, when everything looks like a nail when all you have is a hammer. It's like, it's too broad brush for me. Because, for example, a colon, you know, colon screening of one kind or another, not necessarily colonoscopy, but a fit test or whatever, can really extend very, very high quality of life for people. Um, fourth, fifth, sixth lines of chemo, no, you know, um, it won't. So I just think it's a much more fine-grained conversation, and that's why I think the the health stages that I describe in the book are so relevant, because you have some people who are extremely full of life, healthy, living wonderful lives at 80 and 90, and you have other people who are literally waking up every morning in the nursing home and saying, why am I still alive? So it's it's not strictly an aged thing, which unfortunately has a great deal to do with your socioeconomic status, but that poor people who live in dangerous neighborhoods where they can't go hiking have, you know, 10 to 20 years less high-quality life than people who can take all that good health advice, right? So I just think it's... uh, I think the idea of really making sure that the treatments you're getting are in line with both your values and your health stage is very important and that we all have a right to say no to any medical treatment at any time. Yeah. But I think it's, it's, it's kind of a blunt instrument the way he puts it. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thank you so much. This has just been extremely helpful. My question is for either of you. Um, I'm familiar with the book and read a book called Elderhood, which was written by um, someone also at UC. And there really is a tremendous lack of adequately trained physicians in geriatrics. And I'm wondering if anything is being done to rectify that. No. Hmm. Is there? Oh. <laughs> Can you get her? Yeah. Shoshana. Yeah, I'm I'm Shoshana Ungerlet. I'm a physician, um, and so what I, what I can say there there is a there's been a long standing need recognized right with with 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day in this country. So people see that this has been coming for a long time. There is a piece of legislation called um, the Palliative Care Hospice Education Training Act. I'm sure people in this room have heard of it if they're in the sort of clinical world, but um, the acronym is PACHETA. So it's often referred to as that. And that has been swirling around for, I think, the last 10 years um, in Congress and has finally sort of taking hold. And what that would do is allow for more um, workforce uh, funding of more specifically, more specifically palliative care. But of course, there's so much overlap with the world of geriatrics. Um, and so there's a hope that over the next couple of seasons in Congress that that things will continue to move forward and then that will pass such that hopefully millions and millions of dollars will flow into the healthcare system such that we can be training more fellows mm-hmm. um, in the fields of geriatrics and palliative medicine. And Mike Rabo, who's sitting right here, can probably tell us a whole lot more about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if, did I get that sort of right? Yeah. 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 Um, I'll just jump in, though, with my question, which is putting aside all that we have to do in healthcare and all that physicians yeah. are responsible for, um, Death is not meant to be a medical event. It's never been throughout most of human history. We've medicalized it intensely in the last few years of human Mm -hmm. history. Um, So my question um, to you is, um, what should society be doing to improve Mm. life and dying uh, for people? Wow. I mean, there's... 
I do want to say one thing, though, which is that was one of the reasons I wrote the book is because there aren't that uh, there aren't enough geriatrics doctors and there aren't enough palliative care doctors and people are going to have to be in some ways their own barefoot doctor. They're going to need to acquire skills themselves because it's unlikely that everyone's going to get the kind of care they need. Um, I think it's almost like we delegated, we, society, we delegated the management of dying to medicine. And then we are all so alarmed that it's doing such a poor job. But a lot of the things we've been asking medicine to do are maybe we need to take back in some way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so much. I mean, I think, and it's not just doctors. It's like people need a lot more occupational therapists and physical therapists and home support and home delivery of groceries. And, you know, there's, um, we live in this, I think it's sort of, it's a terrible combination of the fact that we have a highly technological medicine that is in some ways less emotionally skilled than I think it was when there was, it couldn't fix as many things, you know? (laughs) And then we're, colliding that with a very fragmented society where we have more and more people who are divorced or single who are going to be dying, living alone and dying alone. So I think part of what we have to do, and I talk about it in the book, which is you've got to find your tribe and make your tribe and start giving to the people that, you know, pay it forward, pay it backwards. You know, you've got an older neighbor, you know, a very small kindness to an older neighbor might make the difference between them being able to stay at home as long as they like or not. Mm-hmm. And that if you start to get into more of a favor exchange with people, hopefully you're going to feel okay when you need to call someone and say, hey, can you pick up something from me for the doctor? Can you drive me to chemo? So, you know, I think we've got to rebuild these networks of caring for each other um, and just take every opportunity. And it doesn't have to be a huge give, you know, but even a lot of little small gives can make a huge difference. And if you have a friend who is being a primary caregiver, to, you know, to help them out any way that you mm-hmm. can. It could be just one load of groceries, you know. Mm-hmm. It could be just taking someone out, mm-hmm. taking a partly demented person out for lunch and giving the caregiver those two or three hours of peace, Um you know, it's they don't bite. You know, um, it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be as hard as you think. Yeah, is that any good? And I think, and I would add too. Yeah, just what we're doing here, normalizing yeah. the conversation about our mortality. Yeah, like we have to talk about it more. And earlier, you know, it should be kids should be mm-hmm. exposed to mm-hmm. people who are dying and be able to have these conversations about our mortality. It's really, you know, that's what. Endwell is doing is trying mm-hmm. to start a movement so that we start talking about our own mortality because that's where it begins. Because right now it's sort of in the shadows. Yeah. So. It's funny. We're both like fascinated by it and we want it to be all spiritual. <laughs> but on the other hand, the sort of the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of it, we, we're very unfamiliar with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, over here. <laughs> um, so maybe piggybacking off of what you guys were just saying, which is um, there seems to be perhaps a generational gap. Um, I think perhaps because we're having more of these discussions now. And mm-hmm. so my question is, um, when you find yourself in conflict with the caregiver and the loved patient is someone with dementia and so doesn't really have the capacity to really be thinking about what do I want and remember what I want and how that can change over time. And the caregiver is so involved in the medical decisions day to day, but can't really Mm. step out and see the bigger picture. And then you as a family member are sort of like watching all of this, but can't quite move the needle. Um, just curious your thoughts on how to um, maybe break that barrier or, or find peace with not being able to quite break that barrier. Well, I, I lived that with my dad and my mom. Um, I think when you're involved in the stress of daily caregiving, the world gets narrow. It becomes very difficult to think into the future at all. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's kind of the serenity prayer. You know, it's God grant me the serenity to recognize what I can try to change and what I can't. And it's that balance of acceptance and proactivity. I used to have to wait for my mother to hit the wall repeatedly. And then, as my brother said, she would become sweetly reasonable, right? (laughs) But it would be like I wanted, they had enough money, thank God, but she was used to doing everything herself. She didn't like other people in the house. She wanted to do, she didn't want other people there over dinner. You know, she wanted her privacy. Nobody could do it as well as she could. And um, I would sometimes just have to wait and watch her suffer until she was real, you know, she was in tears. And then, okay, let's hire someone to come in and put him to bed. You know, and, but it's also a sales, I'm sorry to say this, it's like a sales job, you know, like I could say to my mother, well, I think it really is a good idea for us to have, pay for someone to come in and do some caregiving or make sure that he goes swimming three times a week because that way he'll stay functional enough to stay out of a nursing home and a nursing home would be so expensive. We're actually saving money by spending money now, you know, you have to think of who that person is and how do you speak to what they value and and their needs it's 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 horrible it's really difficult it's really difficult this is our last audience question thank you katie very much i think it is horrible and <laughs> one of the things i want to encourage all of us to do mm-hmm. is to talk yeah. our family members know we're not home tonight at dinner. So go talk to them about what you did. Talk to them about what you want. And while I think talking with your doctor is important, uh, talking with your family is more important. Yeah. The best yes. gift my mother ever gave me was telling me what she did and didn't want when she was dying. And bless her soul, at my instance, she talked to my sibs. Mm-hmm. So the family meeting that I chaired when she was in the ICU, mm-hmm. it was the best worst meeting I've ever run in my life and encourage your children the movie Coco is divine it's beautifully done it's emotionally rich and it allows you to talk about grandma and grandpa and and abuela and your aunt and all of those people so make it ordinary take take the scariness away from it yeah great thank you so Katie how are you good It is an informed tradition to mm-hmm. ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Katie, <laughs> let's hear it. Um, find your voice and use your voice. We need to change the reimbursement system so that we reimburse doctors for time rather than technology. And that is only going to happen when we have a major grassroots movement because the healthcare industry lobby is one of the three most imp- powerful and well funded. And so, if you want to shape your life and shape the kind of care you get, you need to speak up and to keep speaking up. That's it. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 